Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A network of high-pressure gas pipelines crisscrosses the nation. A third of a million miles and more are on the way. But as demand for gas grows, so do the dangers. The notion of bringing a 42-inch high-pressure natural gas pipeline into downtown Manhattan boggles the mind. It's not a question of if something happens. It's a question of when. Also, how cold is it? The National Weather Service comes up with a new warning. We've got a new advisory for this winter, an extreme cold watch from late tonight through Thursday morning. This is going to replace the wind chill watches and wind chill warnings for North Dakota. Baby, it's cold outside. These stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. President Obama has put the kibosh, at least temporarily, on the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. That's the one oil producers in Canada want to build to carry low-quality, high-sulfur crude from the tar sands of Alberta 1,700 miles to refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Republicans in Congress had tried to force the Obama administration into making a quick decision on the $7 billion pipeline by attaching it to a payroll tax cut extension. But in a written statement denying the construction permit, the president said the deadline prevented a full assessment of the pipeline's impact. For proponents, it's back to the drawing board. They get to resubmit plans for the pipeline route. For opponents, it's a major, if temporary, victory. Environmentalist Bill McKibben led the fight against the Keystone XL pipeline. I wrote the first book on climate change 23 years ago, and I, there are very few days in those two decades when uh, scientists have been able to smile and the fossil fuel industry had to scowl. This was one of them. Barack Obama not only did the right thing about the Keystone pipeline, he also did the brave thing. But President Obama did not rule on the merits of the pipeline. He basically said the Republicans in Congress rushed him and he uh, he, he didn't even have a chance to rule on the merits of the pipeline. They haven't had, you know, the Republicans didn't give them time to even judge it. And TransCanada or anybody else is, you know, of course, free to apply to build another one. It'll take a long time for that application to go through, and there'll be lots and lots of us watching at every turn to make sure that the process is transparent and that the science is respected. Congress, can they change the rules of the game? Right now, it's the president's decision. Well, Congress can certainly try to do a lot of things, and doubtless they will, because in essence, they're a um, harem of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, They took a vote a couple of weeks ago to, you know, expedite this approval process. It was 234 to 193 in the House, and those 234 people had taken $42 million from the fossil fuel industry for their campaigns. They're bought and paid for. We work to get the president to do the right thing. Now we'll work to get Congress to do the right thing. We're going to try, that's for sure. 
Well, the Chamber of Commerce says, you know, we're talking jobs here. We're talking uh, fuel from a friendly source. The only independent study of jobs from this pipeline done by Cornell showed that it would kill as many jobs as it would create. That fuel from a friendly source is destined for export to Latin America and Europe, not for use in the U.S. The arguments in favor of this are simply bogus. They're just cover for the fact that people want to make some money pumping more oil. And, of course, they all ignore the biggest argument of all. As Jim Hansen of NASA said, if you tap those tar sands heavily, it's essentially game over for the climate. Now, that doesn't matter to the Chamber of Commerce. They filed a legal brief with the EPA two years ago saying that the climate wouldn't warm, but that if it did, humans could, and I quote, alter their physiology in order to uh, continue to inhabit this earth. Uh, so for them, no big deal. Uh, we'd actually rather have a few of those giant energy companies alter their business plans and let the rest of us keep our anatomy more or less intact. Climate activist Bill McKibben, head of 350.org, has led the fight against the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. For a different perspective on the president's decision to deny a permit for the pipeline, we turn to Travis Davies, spokesman with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers based in Calgary, Alberta. It's very disappointing. Uh, We've been through a three-year process. Now, that said, there's some positive takeaways, uh, one being that the president said it was not denied on the merits of the project, the other being that uh, TransCanada Pipeline uh, is committed to reapplying. So is it a delay? Yes. But there is a lot of merit to this project, both for the U.S. and for Canada. How many jobs do you think this would create? Well, the pipeline specifically, I can't really get to. Oil sands, I I know a bit more about. In terms of U.S. and Canada, a group called the Canadian Energy Research Institute has done some work on forecasting. If you look out over the next 25 years, oil sands uh, will create uh, almost 900,000 jobs in Canada uh, and an additional 400,000 to 500,000 jobs in the U.S. Mr. Davies, why not just build the pipeline in Canada and send it out from one of your ports, either east or west? Well, that's a good question, and we're looking at those options. Of course, there's several proposals to get to Pacific Tidewater. Uh, There's already a pipeline going over there, and we do export to places in the U.S., like Washington and California, increasingly Asia. The thrust is that there's a lot of demand in the Gulf. We've got a situation where... Mexican heavy oil is in steep decline, so you've got a situation where one of the largest refining markets in the world has a lot of spare capacity. I know there was a study done by the Communications, Energy, and Paperworkers Union in Canada, and um, it showed that Canada would have 18,000 more jobs if the oil was refined first in Canada. Why not do that? All well and good, but as I said before, over 25 years, we see this, uh, the resource producing you know, almost 900,000 jobs. As it stands today, we don't have enough labor to do a lot of the work we're going to need to do. As I understand it, our refineries here in the United States would take that oil, turn it into diesel, which then they would export to South America and Europe, because that's what they use there. I go back to the fact that you're buying Canadian oil at a discount. Why are you going to sell that and buy more expensive oil? Now, and, and that's, you know, maybe, maybe some, there, there might be a limited supply that does go to Europe, but by far and large, this is going to get used in the USA. Travis Davies is with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Well, Keystone XL is actually the second pipeline oil producers in Canada want built. The first, Keystone 1, went into service in 2010. Since then, the 2,100-mile-long pipeline has suffered a dozen leaks. Most of them are small, a few gallons, but last May, a valve failed in North Dakota spilling 21,000 gallons. 
The year before in Michigan, a different oil pipeline ruptured, sending 800,000 gallons of oil into the Kalamazoo River. Crisscrossing the nation is a huge network of pipelines. Most carry natural gas. About a third of a million miles are huge transmission pipes carrying gas under high pressure. Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood has said, improving the safety of pipelines is the first thing that I think of in the morning and the last that keeps me up at night. In September 2010, the nation got a wake-up call. A pipeline exploded in the San Francisco suburb of San Bruno. Eight people died. 38 homes were destroyed. It sounded like a jet, almost, like just a giant roar, and then the the biggest boom I've ever heard in my life. But it was a high-pressure natural gas line that ruptured, caused the explosion, and then fueled the spectacular blaze. The local utility company, Pacific Gas and Electric, says they will be accountable if it's determined they were at fault. PG&E, owner of the pipeline, has accepted responsibility for the disaster. But investigative blogger Frank Gallagher says it's not an isolated case. Frank, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the uh, San Bruno accident. Um, What happened? Uh, Faulty valves, lack of shutoff valves. That was the, you know cause of the explosion. But at the end of the day, it was discovered that these pipelines had been uninspected for years and that PG&E, in fact, didn't have any of the records pertaining to any of the of the pipelines. They couldn't even tell you exactly where they were or when the last time was that they looked at them. Reading your online blog, naturalgaswatch.org, uh, suggests very strongly that this is not an isolated case. Oh, absolutely not. There are major pipeline incidents all over the country with astonishing regularity. I mean, following San Bruno, you had uh, a major explosion in Philadelphia that killed one person. You had Allentown, which killed six people, I believe. Just first week of January, you had a major explosion in Kentucky, which was the fourth major explosion in 10 years in Kentucky. I mean, these things occur with jaw-dropping regularity. We have um, something like a third of a million miles of natural gas transmission lines throughout this country. It's a huge network. It is, and it's expanding every day. I mean, with the discovery of the Marcellus shale gas play, the goal now of these companies is to get that gas to market as quickly as possible. And the way to do that is to expand the transmission system. So they're building pipelines at an incredible pace. They want to build a a pipeline uh, that's going to go through Jersey City, Bayonne, New Jersey, Staten Island, and then come up in Manhattan. Under the Hudson, right into lower Manhattan, just blocks away from where the World Trade Center was. The mayor of Jersey City, which is the second largest city in in New Jersey, says, no way, Jose. He does, but unfortunately, you know, it's out of his hands. At the end of the day, the decision rests with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. They have final approval. So what are the concerns? Well, the concerns are very real. The concerns are that this thing could explode. I mean, if you look at Spectra Energy, their safety record got some spots on it. Spectra is the company that wants to build this. Spectra Energy is the company that wants to build this. And the notion of bringing a 42-inch high-pressure natural gas pipeline into downtown Manhattan boggles the mind. It's not a question of if something happens. It's a question of when. What's the pressure uh, of these pipelines? Anywhere from... 1,000 to 1,200 PSI, pounds per square inch, which is enormous high pressure. Spectrum says this is going to be the safest pipeline in the United States. They say we've got these robots which detect and fill leaks. 
that we've got these emergency valves and you're smiling. Yes, of course I am, because that is what the pipeline companies say every time they want to build a pipeline. And I would point you to the Millennium Pipeline in New York State, the southern tier. This thing is was built a couple, two years ago to pipe shale gas directly off the Marcella Shale Play into New York City. Two years old. This pipeline was just shut down by the feds, the Pipeline Hazardous Materials and Safety Administration, because of defective welds. And these were welds that were identified as defective before they went into the ground. One day, you know, an inspector was walking by and saw bubbles coming out of a creek, which is indicative of a leak. And the feds came in, went through all the paperwork, looked at the leaks and said, this is an accident waiting to happen. Shut this thing down right now and come up with a plan to fix this or we'll shut it down for you. The Congress recently passed uh, new federal regulations punishing companies that violate the law, doubling the fines. Right. From what, 100000 to $200,000? You know, a $200,000 fine, a million-dollar fine is not going to bankrupt these companies. The fact is there, as you said, are, what, 350,000 miles of transmission lines throughout this country expanding at a rapid pace. And the federal agencies that are charged with overseeing this, you know, like every other federal agency, are underfunded, understaffed, overworked. There is absolutely no way that a couple of dozen inspectors that are assigned to these pipelines can keep up. This bill that recently passed was considered a jobs bill, and um, it increases the number of inspectors from 124 to 134. Right. It asked, what, 10 inspectors. You know, so the the notion that 10 inspectors are going to be able to adequately police pipelines is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Natural gas. We've got an abundance of it. It's cheap. It burns clean. It's considered a bridge fuel until we can get to renewable resources. Right, right. Well, it's cheap depending on what you consider cheap. If you're talking strictly dollars and cents, you can maybe make a case that it's cheap. If you want to add in all the other costs, the societal costs that occur and that have to be paid for getting this gas out of the ground into market, it becomes extraordinarily expensive because shale gas over and above traditional gas has a carbon cost of getting it from the wellhead to market that puts it, if Cornell research uh, is to be believed, makes it more carbon intensive than coal. We will put more carbon into the air extracting this natural gas than you would if you just went and burned coal because this stuff needs truck after truck after truck to get it out into market. I mean, you have water that has to be trucked in, injected, then removed, trucked out. For example, there are days in Wyoming where a rural Wyoming, this is farm country, cows, ranchers, have worse air quality than Los Angeles. Because? Because of natural gas drilling. Natural gas is methane. methane Absolutely. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. It's a, if Depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere from 20 to 30 times more damaging than carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And they're venting the stuff off freely. You know, if you consider all those costs, then suddenly natural gas becomes not so cheap. Frank Gallagher's investigative blog is called naturalgaswatch.org. Frank Gallagher, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Joe. 
Just ahead, herbicides used on highways might be harmful to your health. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Along the sides of our nation's highways are strips of space, some covered in grass, trees, and flowers, others stripped bare. And as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, it's these areas that cause concern for some who travel the roads. Lisa Arkin pilots her Subaru wagon along a highway outside Eugene, Oregon. She gazes at the road shoulder and shakes her head. We just passed over the Willamette River, and you can see acres and acres of dead vegetation, dead from herbicide spray. Arkin is executive director of Beyond Toxics, a nonprofit that's been trying to persuade the state of Oregon to find other ways of maintaining the highways. And when they spray, people with immune deficiencies, someone going through a cancer treatment, someone with allergies or asthma, you might have children in the car, you might be a pregnant woman, and you have no idea that you've driven through miles of a recent spray. Arkin's disagreement is with the state, not with this county. Unlike the state, Lane County has a no-spray policy, and the contrast between state roads and county roads is plain to see. And now we're merging onto a highway that's managed by the uh, Lane County Public Works Department, and we start to see flowers <laughs> and vegetation that's still green. Opposition to herbicides is not uncommon here in Lane County, home to Eugene, a university town. It's a part of Oregon where organic agriculture is strong. Last spring, when the Oregon Transportation Commission heard testimony about roadside herbicide policy, farmer John Sunquist spoke up. I have testified before you several times in the past urging you to protect citizens and the environment by stopping the poisoning of state-maintained roads in Lane County. And I ask you to enjoy the green, beautiful, poison-free, salmon and wildlife-enhancing roadsides of Lane County. The state of Oregon and its Department of Transportation is much like other state DOTs. It sprays herbicides such as glyphosate that disrupt plant metabolism. That can be once or several times a year. Will Lackey coordinates the teams that work in that space to the right of the white line in Oregon, and he describes how it should look. We really would not like to have any vegetation growing six to eight feet from the pavement. That is primarily for drainage, for a safe recovery zone for cars so they can they have a place to pull off, visibility, fire hazards. And it's also, if we can keep that bare, that's our first line of defense for noxious weed control. Two of the main questions that preoccupy highway workers when they contemplate any stretch of shoulder are, is it free of plants in general? And specifically, are there any noxious or invasive plants like rush skeleton weed or puncture vine? We target a lot of just noxious weed control. So we have people out on four-wheelers or even, you know, just backpack spraying, just going after individual plants. Washington State, Oregon's neighbor to the north, also uses herbicide, but has dramatically reduced the amount in recent years. Ray Willard manages roadside maintenance in Washington State. He's a landscape architect by training. He says when his department first scrutinized its use of herbicide, it found some was unnecessary. I think what was happening at that time is a lot of the decisions that were being made were being made by the crews out in the field. And so there really wasn't as much oversight in terms of 
is this really the right thing to do and is it necessary or is there a more effective way to do it? As Willard's department reevaluated, it found there wasn't much research to help predict what would happen if they sharply reduced herbicide use. Would they need much more staffing? Would it cost much more? They set clearer guidelines and instituted annual training for highway workers, and Washington cut its herbicide use by 66 percent, from 126,000 pounds of active ingredient in 2003 to 42,000. Last year, they actually used more than the year before. Willard says that's because they've gone back to spraying some stretches. What we found was that it is actually, in a lot of cases, cheapest to treat that band of earth with herbicides. And so as a result, some of the areas that we had let go and and grow back to grass now, we are maintaining them as vegetation-free again now with herbicides. He points out some plants, when they're cut, come back stronger each year. If we can make very precise, you know, specific applications, we can do that very safely in terms of worker exposure and environmental exposure. And we are much more efficient and effective in terms of our budget and use of the taxpayers' money. But those who oppose this method of keeping the roadside clean and bare say taxpayer money also goes to uncalculated health costs. The public health effects of herbicides is an area of research that's still developing. People are unlikely to be severely poisoned. But the jury is still out on more subtle effects to developing fetuses or people with genetic predisposition to greater sensitivity. The concern over herbicides was enough to persuade Oregon's former Transportation Commission chair, Gail Achterman, to send a message last year that the status quo is not acceptable. I am very worried about this issue, and I don't think it's good for our employees, nor do I think it's good for society to be using herbicides when other alternatives are available. We're going to start running into real liability exposure on the continued use of these toxics. That message was heard. Oregon Vegetation Management Chief Will Lackey says change is happening. Over the next five years, we're going to reduce our pounds of active ingredient by 25%. So our bare shoulders, our brush treating, and some of our landscape, we're going to reduce our pounds active ingredient by 25%. There have been similar public rebellions against highway herbicide over the last 30 years in other parts of the West, Northeast, and in Minnesota, and the trend is toward reduction in those regions. The issue is so far not an issue in much of the Midwest and the South. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Motorheads and gearbox gurus got to kick the tires and look under the hoods of hundreds of cars in Detroit at the North American International Auto Show. And this year, after a dismal spell when U.S. car companies nearly skidded into oblivion, automakers have something to cheer about. Sales are up. At this year's show, new hybrids of all sizes and styles took center stage, which is interesting because since they first hit the road about a decade ago, only about 2 million hybrids have been sold in the United States, just 2.5% of total car sales. 
And John O'Dell, senior editor of Green Cars and Fuel Efficiency at Edmunds.com, says half of the hybrids sold here are Toyota Priuses. Prius has become synonymous in this country with uh, with hybrid. And a lot of people look at that and they go, wow, it's, it is low, the market penetration. But it's only been in the last three to four years that there's been, you know, that anybody other than Toyota and Honda have come to the market with hybrids. But the big roadblock is they cost more money than the non-hybrid versions. There's not a lot of savings when fuel is relatively inexpensive and when you can buy conventional engine vehicles that give you 35, 40 miles per gallon. You know, if you're having to pay four to $6,000 more for some of these hybrids, um, you could pump a lot of gasoline at $3.80 a gallon or three fifty a gallon for $4,000. I'm wondering, John, since these auto companies are producing so many um, hybrid models, do they know something that the average consumer doesn't because the sales figures have been so dismal? I think what they know is that public policy is continuing to require better and better overall or average fleet improvements in fuel economy. And the most reasonable way economically that the automakers see that they can do this is to continue improving the internal combustion engine. And then even if they don't sell in huge volume, you provide the hybrid models that have a bigger jump than is required. And when you start averaging, they go a long way towards helping you know, pull up the averages from the bulk of your fleet, which would, will continue to be internal combustion engines of some sort or another. But the public doesn't seem to be receptive to these cars. Well, it's hard to be receptive to something. You know, we're, we're in a society that has used the automobile for about 100 years. Uh, we traded up from horses. And we found very quickly that the automobile uh, gave us a lot of uh, additional utility, a lot of additional functionality, and the, and the price differential was worth it. Now we're asking people to trade a vehicle that works, a power plant that works, and a fuel that works for new stuff that comes with a lot of baggage. There aren't very many fueling stations for any alternative fuel. Uh, the vehicles tend to cost more, and at best they don't do anything more for you utility-wise than a, a gasoline vehicle or a diesel vehicle, and at worst they do less for you. But John, so, you know, I, John to... I don't think you'd make a great car salesman for green cars. <laughs> well, you know, I'd love to be a great car salesman. I, I have a Nissan Leaf in my garage. I have a, uh, a natural gas Honda in my garage, and those are personal vehicles, not fleet vehicles. I bought them and paid for them myself. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of value in having them. I personally, uh, uh, you know, I'm saving money driving and not having to go to the gas stations. And uh, uh, there are natural gas stations in a lot of places. You know, if you want to talk about savings, I pump it at home uh, with a, uh, a home unit, and I pay the equivalent of about a dollar seventy a gallon for fuel. So, John, are you driving the future? Is your natural gas vehicle uh, what we could expect? I noticed that you're you've been appointed to the National Research Council's Committee on Transitions to Alternate Vehicles and Fuels. Is that natural gas? Uh, no, natural gas will be one of the things. Uh, but there's a lot of work being done quietly now. It was noisier a little while ago on uh, what they call drop-in biofuels, uh, liquid replacements for gasoline so that you can use the same distribution system. You can use the same kinds of cars with the same kinds of fuel tanks, uh, and you're not asking people to, uh, in society to make a quantum change. But biofuels are still not ready for prime time. They're, they're not pumping a lot of that because they're not making a lot of it. They're not 
making a lot. Uh, the only thing they make is uh, corn-based ethanol uh, in any great volume, and it you know it's quite possible to have effectively a zero tailpipe emission internal combustion engine if you have the right fuel for it. And so, you know, the engine itself or, or that technology should not be demonized uh, because right now we're burning petroleum and, and carbon-based fuels uh, because it is possible to run them on, on other things. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of smart people working on other things to run them on. John O'Dell is Senior Editor of Green Cars and Fuel Efficiency at Edmunds.com. Well, back in 2007, President George W. Bush had the same idea, promising federal funds to find new fuels for our cars. One of these days, the scientists tell me, and I believe, that we'll be able to manufacture fuel for your automobiles from switchgrass or biomass or wood chips. And then all of a sudden, if you really think about it and are optimistic about America's capacity to use technology to change our way of life, Then all of a sudden you begin to see the rationale for saying that we can reduce gasoline usage by 20% over the next 10 years. I believe it's coming. I really do. Since 2007, the government has devoted hundreds of millions of dollars to subsidies and loan guarantees for companies hoping to make fuels from plants. But so far, progress is stalled. Jeremy Martin is a biofuels expert with the Union of Concerned Scientists. The promise was to start producing commercially as early as 2010 at a level of 100 million gallons, and then going up steadily till this level of 16 billion in 2022. And what's happened is that that first production hasn't happened yet. The facilities which were didn't get built, and a lot of that has to do with you know what happened in 2008 and 2009, and I'm sure everybody will remember that those were, uh, were tough years to get a loan for just about anything, and in particular for new technology. But back in the Bush administration in 2007, the government awarded $385 million in grants to jumpstart ethanol from wood chips and switchgrass, citrus peel. Yeah, and also uh, agricultural wastes, things like corn cobs and corn stalks, and even garbage. Hmm. Uh, But I would say they announced that level of grants. Actually, if you went through the records, you'd find that the majority of those checks never got cashed or even uh, mailed out. Those grants required the companies to raise a lot of private capital to match government money, which probably seemed reasonable in 2007. But of course, 2008 and 2009 were very tough years to borrow money under any circumstances. Well, one of the companies that did cash the federal checks uh, was Range Fuels in Georgia. They actually built a plant. What happened to them? They got over $160 million in loan guarantees and in grants and money from the state. Yeah, they are the the one exception. They they moved very quickly and got started. So there's a lot of different ways that people have to convert this cellulosic biomass into fuel. And, you know, they were using a an existing technology that just wasn't cost competitive. Unfortunately, you know, we learned the hard lesson first, and the other technologies are still, you know, at the starting gate. So is this an example of the federal government trying to pick a renewable energy um, technology, a winner, and having a failure? Because as I understand that they haven't produced a drop of cellulosic ethanol. I think we're, we're certainly behind schedule. Uh, as far as picking winners, I mean, there was an important reason that people wanted an alternative to oil. And that was climate change. It was oil dependence, high oil prices. And I think all of those reasons remain just as true today as they were in 2007. And so that's why I think it's worth taking the time and, and sticking with this one, because we do need alternatives to oil. Well, the backer of that plant in Georgia actually has a new company in Michigan. And I'm looking at an article 
uh, that uh, he had to, in, you know, tell potential investors what were the risks were. And this is a direct quote. We have a limited operating history, a history of losses, and the expectation of continuing losses, and we have no experience in the markets in which we intend to operate. Boy, that sounds pretty risky. Vinod Kosla, I think, is the investor you're referring to? Yes, he was the one that did Range Range Fuels, and this one. Yeah, generally these startup companies have a variety of backers. He's backed a, a great number of technologies, and I think you know, his his approach is to look for a lot of things and hope that some of them pan out. And, you know, the first bet here hasn't paid off, and, and he lost a good bit of money on that. But, you know, he's still bullish that there's a market here in the future, and I remain convinced that it's worth focusing on and it's worth investing in. Well, cellulosic ethanol promises to be a lot cleaner than gasoline, I guess something like 85% in terms of greenhouse gases. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there aren't a lot of other alternatives that are that clean. And there's certainly, when you look at the scale of the problem, you know, how much gasoline we use, the technology that allows us to turn environmentally friendly sources of biomass into fuel is a, is a really important technology and, and one that's worth investing in. So is the challenge right now technological? Is that the problem? Well, there's certainly technological challenges, and there's a variety of, of different approaches and, and a number of companies with new technology. Some of them uh, use heat and, and gas to convert the the biomass into into gases and, and through a, what they call a thermochemical process to make fuel. Others use enzymes. Those are things, chemicals that speed up uh, processes. Yeah, or, or organisms, microorganisms. Uh, so there's a variety of, of different technologies, and the technology is certainly one of the challenges, but the uh, financing these facilities has proven to be one of the really significant challenges. And I think that's one where, you know, the circumstances, you know, that weren't foreseen in 2007 really have slowed things down. The technology or the idea of getting uh, energy out of uh, this this material is not new. It goes back to 1898. Yeah, absolutely. And people have, have done it at occasion. It's The question is uh, making it cost effective. I, I think it's long been recognized that if you could make biomass into fuel, you'd have a, a great business. But didn't Chevron Oil and Shell, didn't they have investments in cellulosic companies? What happened to their investments? What happened to those companies? Well, a lot of those major oil companies are investors in many of the cellulosic biofuel companies. I'm looking forward to seeing them produce fuel instead of just press releases. But, you know, they're the ones who control the fuel market. And essentially, these laws that Congress have passed amount to, a, you know, an encouragement to them to, or a, a requirement, that they clean up their act and, and start producing cleaner fuels. The technology will march forward uh, with or without government support, but you know, how long it takes to really start to displace oil and to really start to reduce the emissions from transportation is, is what's at stake here. Well, Jeremy Martin, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Jeremy Martin is a biofuels expert and a senior scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Coming up, Arctic warming and a new way to warn about extreme cold. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, 
supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, as the frozen Arctic melts, nations discuss how to divvy up a cool trillion dollars worth of resources. But first, this note on emerging science from Jack Rodolico. Narwhals have baffled humanity for hundreds of years. But a new study may answer some basic questions about the Arctic whales. Where do they go and what are they doing when they get there? Narwhals are best known for their corkscrew tooth, or tusk, that grows up to nine feet out of their heads. A thousand years ago, their tusks were sold around the world as unicorn horns. But today, scientists believe the tooth is a sensory organ, like an antenna. That may explain why narwhals seem to respond to large ships as far as 30 miles away. But they don't encounter ships often. Narwhals live in remote waters throughout the Arctic Ocean, making them a tricky whale to study. Now, the World Wildlife Federation and the Canadian government are working on a catch-and-release program so they can take a closer look at the large mammals. A team of scientists on Baffin Island cast a big net along the beach and waited for narwhals to swim into it. They strapped satellite transmitters on seven narwhals. Now the tracking devices beam data constantly, keeping the team informed about the mammals' whereabouts. The researchers hope the transmitters will answer some basic questions about narwhal behavior and perhaps even shed some light on the narwhal's curious antenna. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jack Rodolico. The rush is on in the resource-rich Arctic. So in an effort to coordinate and manage the region, the eight nations with territory in the far north formed the Arctic Council. Representatives from the U.S., Russia, Canada, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, and Finland just met in Toronto to consider the fate of the Council and the Arctic. Six indigenous communities have permanent participant status on the Council, and at issue is whether they should allow China, Brazil, and India to join several European nations as observers. Tony Peniket, former premier of the Yukon, chaired this year's Arctic Council meeting. He says global warming in the region is a game-changer. Well, suddenly the Arctic has become hot. Not only has climate change significantly reduced the polar ice cap, that leads many people to believe that there's greater access to the oil and gas resources that may be below the seabed, uh, but also that transportation routes across northern Russia and across northern Canada may be opened up sometime in the near future. Um, And, of course, countries like China and India that have huge interests in energy questions And countries like South Korea and Singapore, which have huge interest in shipping matters, would very much like to be in the room when these kind of issues are discussed. The problem for some of the people, particularly in the indigenous people, is that if very powerful non-Arctic states uh, get into the room and start dominating the conversation, they're worried that their voices will be drowned out. So what kind of riches are in the Arctic in terms of mineral resources, oil, gas? There has been a lot of, I think, unfortunate hype uh, in many headlines around the world suggesting that there's some kind of huge gold mine waiting to be plundered, you know, kind of Wild West kind of way, uh, Klondike Gold Rush kind of way. But 
Even a responsible agency in Canada, the Geological Survey of Canada, estimates that in the high Arctic islands in Canada alone, there's something like a trillion dollars worth of oil and gas. Ooh. To your mind, can the resources and the riches in the Arctic be safely extracted? Can they be done? I think the general rule is, and if they can't, resources can't be uh, extracted sustainably, and if they can't be done in a way that uh, produces benefits for northern communities and for northern peoples, I think the general rule is, well, let's leave them in the ground. You think that's even conceivable when you're talking about a trillion dollars of oil and gas? Yes, because that trillion dollars, which is, a, of course, the theoretical number, uh, is very, they're very hard to access. And if you think about the Inuit who live in northern Canada, the Inuit are unique among all the peoples in the world because they didn't just live on the coastline, but they actually lived, hunted, fished, and actually lived on the sea ice. That's the sea ice which is now melting. These are people who have a huge stake and a huge interest in those resources and how they're developed and how their environment is protected. And their view is very much that of stewards. If the indigenous peoples say no resource extraction in the uh, Arctic homelands, do the world's nations respect that? Well, you need to understand that in Alaska, in Canada, and Greenland, as a result of the land claim settlements, Indigenous people are themselves large landowners now. The Inuit in eastern Arctic of Canada, in Nunavut, have a land claim settlement of 350,000 square kilometers. They collectively own that land, but they are, in fact, the largest private landowners in the world. The fact of the matter is that most of the new mines that are now being developed in Nunavut are being developed on privately owned Inuit lands. And so the major beneficiary from the development of those resources are, in fact, the Inuit people themselves. It's ironic. I mean, here we're burning fossil fuels. So we have global warming. The Arctic melts. It makes it accessible, which allows us to extract, or make it possible to extract uh, more carbon and fossil fuels and more global warming. Well, the irony is certainly not lost on northern indigenous people. I mean, Mary Simon, Canadian Inuk leader who was nominated for the Nobel Prize in the same year that Al Gore won his uh, on the climate change issue, often talks about the right of the Inuit to be cold. By that, she means their traditional environment was cold. They would say, therefore, that uh, just because they were on the receiving end, or if you like, the first vic- among the first victims of climate change, should not be a reason why they shouldn't be allowed to get some benefit from those resources in their grounds if they're extracted. And in the Greenlanders, I think the Inuit on, in Greenland, the Greenlanders would say, yes, we're going to develop, responsibly develop our oil and gas, because so far we've never benefited from the resources, and we want to benefit from resources so that we have some money to educate our future generations, to provide health care for them, but also to have the resources to protect our own environment. Uh, they don't want to be divorced from the world economy, but they do want to have more mastery of their own homelands. Well, Mr. Penniquet, thank you so very much. That's a pleasure talking to you. That's Tony Penniquet, former premier of the Yukon and chairman of this year's Arctic Council meeting, which just concluded. Well, the Arctic village of Moriusak is one of the northernmost outposts in the world. It's on the northwest coast of Greenland, population at last count, two. And the temperature there, minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, downright balmy.
Here in New England, it's been a warm winter so far, but things are getting chilly, and I'm about to head out. Hey, Ike, uh, you been outside recently? Oh, hey, hey, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, I was just out. Hi, is it cold out? Yeah, it's pretty cold out. So, Ike, how cold is it? Well, Bruce, it's so cold. I just chipped my tooth on soup. <laughs> That's cold. Yeah. But honestly, Bruce, in some places, the cold is no laughing matter. I called a guy with the National Weather Service in Grand Forks, North Dakota. His official title is Warning Coordination Meteorologist. And believe it or not, Bruce, his name is Greg Gust. Some people wonder how that came to be. I didn't plan it that way. Just something in the air. As you can see, I waited to meteorology and not into comedy. And that's good. Warning people of dangerous weather is serious work. Yes, that is correct. And you're in the business this time of year of telling people how cold it is. Yes, except this winter we've been incredibly mild so far, so so I'm kind of halfway out of a job. Don't worry, though. Nature will keep Gust employed. By 5 p.m. tomorrow, temperatures drop like a rock below zero as we get off work on Wednesday. Those frigid temperatures mean hunkering down for most North Dakotans. For the state's forecasters, it means they get to unwrap a brand new advisory. We've got a new advisory for this winter, an extreme cold watch from late tonight through Thursday morning. This is going to replace the wind chill watches and wind chill warnings for North Dakota. To have a wind chill, you typically have to have a wind. And quite often we have cold episodes that come in and they may start with a wind, but eventually the, the deep Arctic air mass settles in and the wind stops. And now it's, it's extremely cold. Hence the name? It would be called extreme cold. This year, seven states are trying out the new extreme cold warning that Alaska pioneered years ago. It takes windchill out of the title, but not out of the equation. Typically, to get this, you're going to have temperatures somewhere in the 20 below or colder and some type of wind. And if there's no wind, on a still frigid night in North Dakota, temperatures between minus 30 to 35 will trigger the warning. But one meteorologist's extreme cold could just be another's cold. For instance, over in my uh, colleague's office over in Duluth, Minnesota, they have a minus 40 for the trigger temperature. Huh. Why? Is that because they're five degrees tougher in Duluth? <laughs> it could be. It could be. Uh, extreme cold is in the eye of the beholder. Ask the question, how cold is it, to two different National Weather Service offices, and you'll get different answers. Here's two TV weather reports taken from the same day. In Fairbanks, Alaska? Looks like the cold is sticking with us through the night. 46 below is our overnight high. They don't even make graphics that can describe how cold it is outside, so just the word cold will do. A word that doesn't often appear on a Miami forecast. Good afternoon, South Florida. Gorgeous afternoon for us. This is the type of weather that we love. Well, it's warm day today. We've got the upper 70s in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, 75. The diagonal line from Fairbanks to Miami is almost 5,000 miles. John Lingus at the northernmost weather service uses one word to describe the view from his office. Black. <laughs> um, it's still dark here in Fairbanks. His counterpart, Gerald Estupinan in Miami, chooses another. During the winter months, it's a, it's a paradise. You have a lot of different types of palm trees, subtropical trees. It's a lot of birds that have migrated. But sometimes a cold front blows through paradise. When it gets in the lower 30s, below freezing, the South Florida Weather Service issues the warmest cold weather warnings in the country. In Miami-Dade County, uh, you need a wind chill 
temperature below 50 degrees Fahrenheit to open a shelter. 50 degrees Fahrenheit is probably much higher than any other places. As for the coldest cold weather advisory, from Alaska, the state that invented extreme cold warning, you need to check three boxes. The first criterion is that the air temperature as recorded near the surface needs to be minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The second criterion is colder than minus 35 up to about 10,000 feet. The third criteria is that those conditions have to persist for three or more days. That's when bush pilots stop flying because their hydraulics freeze and fuel turns to slush. So from minus 50 in Fairbanks to 50 in Miami, that's a 100-degree swing for what Americans call cold. For being on the warm end, Miami meteorologists have to weather some insults. Yes, they do. They laugh at us. They say, you know, we're weenies. You know, they think, you know, we cannot put up with the cold. But then we laugh at them because they cannot put up with the humidity. So how cold is it? Well, it's so relative. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreese Kandaraja. This week in India. The Indian subcontinent is a spiritual soundscape. Hildegard Westerkamp put together this audio collage. She gathered sounds of religious chants, morning prayers, and holy places. This cut, attending to sacred matters, can be found on her CD, Into India. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Valinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, and Helen Palmer, with help from Sarah Calkins, Hannah Lyles, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurzdeen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. 
Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.